0: 3 board games podcast for uh mid-march 2021 my name is tom chick and i am
1: not playing pax porphyriana and this is Hassan lopez and i'm not playing cosmic encounter
2: and this is mike pullman and i am not playing agricola
1: oh god
0: mike pullman i cannot this is such a weird idiosyncrasy of mine i loathe Agricola uh I recognize it's a great game and one of the guys in our group it's literally his favorite game and I feel bad that I don't like it so much but it and I love Uwe Rosenberg um but I just hate how punishing and mean and stingy Agricola is it it feels like a
1: petty tyrant of a board game
2: (laughs) (laughs) and it was the number one game on Board Game Geek for years
1: Yeah. yeah I don't, I don't think it's aged well. I mean, I'm sure people would argue with me about that, but I think he has even surpassed it significantly with his subsequent designs.
0: Mm-hmm. You know what, Hassan, that's exactly it. I feel like it's kind of been obsoleted by other, better, wiser Rosenberg. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: Speaking of which, uh, I, against I, – I, when Hollertau uh, is his most recent game, mm. it's uh, about gardening and, and raising sheep – and I've been such a sucker for Rosenberg designs lately. Even the ones I don't like, I like exploring what he does and how he does it. Uh, so I saw a video of Hallertau and convinced myself, nah, there's there's plenty of time I can spend with the games of his that I do have. It looks really busy and complex, and I'm I'm not impressed. So I turned my nose up and just ignored it. Uh, <laughs> but I I. Got in one of those situations where I was buying something online and needed to hit a <laughs> threshold for free shipping and realized, you know, sooner or later I'm going to get Hallertau. So I am now <laughs> the proud owner of Hallertau, even though I just, at this point, kind of have no desire to play it. I've, I've got so many other good Rosenberg games
1: to play. That, I, I think that one is kind of like Agricola 3.0. Like It's a, it's a similar theme, it's just it looks substantially more interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. That, that Hassan is exactly what I'm telling myself, is it's, it's do-over for Agricola, <laughs> this is the new Agricola, I've simply replaced it, yeah, exactly. Uh, nice. Well, all right, let's get into what we are playing uh, lately. Uh, Mike, why don't you start us off, because I think your game, we kind of talked about it a little bit in that when we talked about Dune Imperium mm-hmm. uh, last time, it was this cool new idea of mixing a deck builder with worker placement. But Mm -hmm. now that idea is in two very current games. Uh, We talked about Imperium. The one you're going to talk about is another example of deck builders with worker placement. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are you playing? How do you like it?
2: So uh, I recently played uh, lost ruins of Arnak. Um, I've played it two times now. It's kind of a Indiana Jones type of, Uh, archaeological expedition-themed, exploring lost tombs. Um, And you're right, it's definitely a hybrid of worker placement and deck builder. And I would also add on resource collection, because a lot of the game is around collecting There's five different types of resources. There's uh, Mm -hmm. money, there's these compasses, artifacts, gems, and these little stone tablets. And uh, they are kind of the fuel of how you get points in the game. Um, Unlike normal worker placement games, you only ever have two workers. You can't get any more. You know, a lot of, like, Agricola and so on, you have kids and get more workers to, uh, to do more stuff. Even um, in
0: Dune, you can get a mintat for an oh? extra worker. So there's <laughs> no Mentats in Lost Ruin of Ruins of Arnak, I suppose?
2: Uh, no, there are not. <laughs> uh, there are some ways to get multiple, uh, essentially, worker kind of moves in the game, uh, but that's through uh, getting cards in your deck. Um, speaking of cards, you start with a deck of four cards. Two of the cards generate some of the compasses, two of them generate money, and then you add in these two uh, fear cards, which are kind of the their negative victory points, and they don't really do much. So you're trying to get rid of as many of those as possible by the end of the game. Um, the cards are interesting in that each of them has a primary ability, like giving a resource or maybe a discount to buy a card or something like that. Uh, but in the corner, uh, there's a little picture of a travel icon. And this kind of reminded me of like Eldritch Horror. There's uh, cars, boats, planes, and boots, and you can use, there's a little hierarchy, like you can use a car instead of a boot or a boat instead of a boot and a plane is uh, for anything. Um, going to any space on the board with your workers um, has a little icon next to it. So the base uh, five spots where you just get resources, you just need a boot. So you just have to discard one card and you can't use it as its primary use. Uh, and then as the, uh, the board has uh, eight open spots for level one ruins and four spots for level two ruins. Uh, the level one ruins, you need one icon. Maybe you need a boat to get there, or uh, uh, for the upper ones, maybe you need uh, two planes or two two cars. Is the board um, a map of anything, or it's just random ruins? Um, it's so there. It's a kind of a wide open. I mean, it's you'd, you know, like another worker placement game I I play a lot is Champions of Midgard. Right, there's all these different spots. Okay. Uh, and, but it's uh, not there's... like the
0: world. Like it's not like it, trying to represent no. globe trotting or anything.
2: No, no, no. It's it's just a, an area that you're exploring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, like I said, most of the board is open at the beginning. You have to discover these sites. Uh, and there's a stack of tiles that you flip over. So if I want to go look to uh, find a new level one um, ruin, I have to pay the travel cost to get there, and then I have to pay a couple of these compass markers: three for the level one and six for the level two to turn over a tile. And then it'll show, you know, maybe I got two gold and a stone tablet resource for going there. And then in addition, you put this thing called a guardian on there, which is supposed to be some ancient presence or monster that's kind of guarding the, uh, the spot you just went to. And there are resources you have to pay to get rid of that. And if you don't, you end up getting another fear card at the end of the turn. So kind of haphazardly exploring and uh, not do, taking care of those guardians fills up your deck with extra fear cards, which are negative victory points at the end. And also they kind of take up space in the rotation of not really doing much. They have a uh, one of the boot icons on them and nothing else. Um, and then uh, in addition to that, on the right-hand side of the board, there's this big research track. And that's where you get all of your major victory points. And it's, you start at the bottom, you have a little magnifying glass and a notebook. So you have two markers uh, to kind of move up. And then it's got a couple different paths, and maybe you have to pay a gem and a gold to go up to the next level. And uh, as you get further up the, uh, the track, you get more and more victory points at the end of the game. At the very top, I think it's like 23 or 24. <clears throat> and then um, you also get little bonuses. So you might get some free resources, or um, you also can earn these assistants, which you can have two in the game, and they're uh, one use per round abilities maybe convert a gold into a gem or give you a one-time discount of buying a card. Um, and then at the very end of the track, there are all these, it's essentially you're kind of to the end game where paying resources gets you a whole bunch of victory points. So, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in addition to that, um, the, uh, the cards you buy, there's two different types. There are artifacts and uh, items, and uh, that switches as the game goes on. So there's uh, five rounds in the game, and you start out with one artifact available and five items, and that kind of shifts as the game goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the only other major part of the game is as you're discovering these, uh, uh, these sites, you earn these idle tokens, which are worth three victory points each, and you have the option to kind of use them as a wild card ability, like drawing a card or uh, getting some more resources. <clears throat> and then every time you use one of those abilities, you... You are foregoing victory points, Mike. And, uh, I, have
1: a, I have a couple questions for you. because yeah. I'm, I'm, I am super curious about this game, and I the artwork is really quite striking, and the presentation of the game just looks gorgeous. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the big reasons why it's I think selling so well is that the theme is attractive, and the presentation's really mm-hmm. quite nice. Um, I, it sounds like some people get sort of surprised by the importance of the research track. So do, do you think that that's a satisfying way to earn points in the game when thematically what you want to be doing is exploring and killing shit and doing being like Indiana Jones, but really the way to earn points is to write your little journal articles and publish them <laughs> and yep. advance up this little stupid track and get combos. So that's that was one question that I had for you.
2: Yeah, and, and the major victory points are definitely there. If someone gets to the top of that track and you don't, you're probably going to lose. And the cards and everything else that gives you points, those idols, like I said, there were three. And the cards you buy in your deck, kind of like you know Dominion, each one has a point value on them. But they generally don't go above about two or three. Mm. So they're more, you're buying them for the utility of moving around the board or giving you an advantage. Such as, like I said, a discount, extra resources. Uh, that Those wild card abilities I mentioned where you're slotting, giving up victory points. There's one card that lets you undo those. So, yeah, the the research track is is fairly essential. But I still feel like there's a decent amount of choice in how you want to attack that. Like, you can just basically ignore the board, collect resources, and just do uh, research the entire time. But you're going to do better exploring some sites because you're going to get better payouts of resources. And the game is very short at only five rounds. So you really, it's, like, me and my wife played last night, and I didn't even make it to the top of the research track. And she did on turn five. I think it's going to be a little different with more players because there'll be more choices of places to go around the board. Uh, but definitely a two-player game, it's we're just barely hitting the top of that track by the end.
1: This and this ties into my second question slash concern, which is, I, I mean, how how flexible is the game in terms of allowing multiple strategies? Or is it basically going to be that it plays out the same every time. You have to do some exploration, you have to primarily drive up the research track, and that's just what you're gonna do every single time you play.
2: Yeah, and there's, there's definitely some randomness to it in that which cards are available, because some of them, you might have two available to purchase that make a really nice combo, or the assistants that are currently available might have a combo. Um, for example, you know, if I tap my assistant, I get a free resource, which then is needed to pay something on a card. And lets me get up, you know, further up the research track than I want to in, a, or that I normally would be able to in a given turn. Um, so I think you kind of have to analyze your options and look for the best way to the the, the victory, which is ultimately going to be research. But because of the the tiles are random, the cards are random, it's going to be different every time.
1: Mm-hmm. It, the joy of the game comes in those little victories of getting some special little combo where you suddenly have a very efficient turn.
2: Correct. Yep. Yep, and it's um like it's standard deck builder where you know you're recruiting cards and cycling through them all the time. Um, those artifact cards are interesting in that when you buy them, uh, you immediately get to use them, unlike most deck builders where you just start waiting for them to come back up. So those are a little more powerful than the item cards, uh, which go to the bottom of your deck and then you have to wait for them to come up. And then uh, the cool thing about those cards is. Like I said, five rounds, turn one, one artifact card, and five items. And then that shifts towards the end. It's all artifacts and one item. And artifacts are actually harder to use. Uh, while you get a free use when you buy them, you have to spend these uh, stone tablet tokens to use them on further place. So you can end up with three artifacts in your hand and not be able to use any of them because you don't have any of that resource.
0: Hmm. H- have you tried the solitaire mode?
2: I have not. So it comes with a bunch of cards. A little that it looks like it's just simulating player turns, All right? Um, so I I suspect it will not be one of your favorites, sometimes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tom. I was going to say I, I I did sort of suffer through watching someone solo play it a little bit because I was curious, and I yeah I I think it would be frustrating. Um, it's it's just trying to kind of randomly emulate somebody right. advancing up the research track at a pace that is very challenging for you to match, and so you're just going to constantly be pissed off that the AI is moving up <laughs> faster than you when not playing the rules of the game, you know? Right. I mean, it does sound like it's,
0: from hearing Mike talk, it's very much a multiplayer design. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. And, and I
2: funny. definitely think I haven't seen the full potential of the game because I've only played with my wife so far because of COVID. So a little bit later this year, I'm, I'm looking forward to playing four-player full game and see how that goes.
0: Why is uh, it so hard to find, Mike? You, you sound like – I think you're in a position to know this.
2: It was uh, – the first print run sold extremely well. We just got a restock of uh, a dozen copies, uh, and now it's out again. So I don't know. This is – it looks like this is their, the designer's first game, so I don't know if Check Games was not doing a big print run until they knew it was going to be selling. I'm not sure. Right. right. Um, there is right. A, a second side to the board I haven't played yet either, which is a different layout, a different research track, and so on. I think it's, it's supposed to be a little harder.
0: Uh, do you know Raynor um Oh shoot, I can't think of the name of it. It's his deck builder with a, a racing game. Uh, Dag Nabbit. What is that called? Uh, quest, quest for El Dorado. That exactly, one. Exactly. Yes. Quest. Mike, do you know
2: Quest for El Dorado? I, I know of it, but I have not played it. I can okay, pick it up. <laughs> that that doesn't
0: have the worker placement, but it's very much the same milieu. Uh, the 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 sort of Indiana Jones going on an adventure uh, setting, uh, and it is a deck builder, but you're racing along a map rather than doing worker placement resource management. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And no solitaire mode for me to hate in Quest for <laughs> El Dorado. <So,
1: laughs>
0: Very good. Uh, all right, so um, Hassan, how do you... So it looks like you. this has been on your radar a bit.
1: It is, yeah. Like, I mean, again, I think, like I said, with Dune Imperium, I kind of, I like deck builders that are trying to do different things, and I think people are being increasingly creative about how they mix deck building in with other board game mechanics. Uh, I've had a very positive experience with Dune Imperium, and yeah. this one, I, I'd like to try it out. Uh, but the, but the solitaire mode wasn't enough to convince me to buy it for right. for the pandemic so i am going to wait until i can get back together with my group
0: mm-hmm.
1: and as someone who follows designers too i'm always happy to see
0: when a first-time designer uh, looks like two folks in, in this situation uh when something really takes off that, that, that they've made happy uh, and jealous happy and
2: jealous <laughs> right <laughs>
0: i can imagine right right oh,
2: I, just, I just noticed it's a husband-wife team that designed this
0: yeah. oh that's even more adorable that's just yep. precious now i love that <laughs> All right, well, uh, I wanna talk then about a a father-son design team. Uh, So I've been playing, uh, this, this game also has a solitaire mode that I hate for the same reason that I hate other solitaire modes and that all it does is you flip up a card and it arbitrarily makes the AI do stuff that has nothing to do with the rules of the game. So this, I have not played solitaire because I don't like it that way, But I have had a couple of occasions where I either sat outside across a table from a friend or sat inside masked if it was too cold. Uh, And I actually have gotten to play this a couple times since the pandemic started. Um, And the draw of this game, this is Pax Transhumanity. uh, And it's the latest in a series that began with some weird little game called Pax Porphyriana. And if you're like me, you have no frame of reference for what those words mean together. (laughs) And everybody knows Pax is Latin for peace. We know from Pax Romana. I'm sure there are games called Pax Romana, uh, where the Roman Empire imposed peace. So, but what the heck is a (laughs) Porfiriana? And that's the, I think it was the president of of Mexico back around the turn of the the, uh, 19th century when the U.S. and Mexico were tussling. Uh, And Pax Porfiriana is about this very specific geographical place and time where this struggle was occurring. And it never would have occurred to me that this could be something interesting to game. But it's got a little bit of colonialism, a little bit of Old West, uh, a lot of esoteric mechanics for how to express different politics uh, in conflicts. Uh, it has gold mines. Um, so PAX Porphyriana, the very first game in the PAX series, I really liked, and it was made by Phil and Matt Eklund, who are a father and son team. Tom, and am, since, I, am, am yes. I
1: right that you and Bruce did a did a video playthrough of that? Did did I see that, or did I imagine that? So we did their next game together,
0: uh, PAX Renaissance. <laughs> uh. Which makes much more sense because everybody knows what the Renaissance is. You, you may not know what a porphyriana is, but you've heard of the Renaissance, uh, and it it takes that, that gameplay system and it basically explodes it across the known world during the well across the Europe and the Middle East uh, during the Renaissance. Um, and it encompasses Catholicism, the Protestant Reformation, uh, Islam. Like, it's huge. It's massive in scope. Um, but it uses that same system from Pax Porphyriana. They've also done, uh, they got a fellow named Cole Worley, who we will talk about shortly, to do a game called Pax Pamir, which is more in the tradition of Porphyriana in that it's about uh, Afghanistan when Britain and Russia were expressing, were, were uh, empires exerting their influence over Afghanistan. Um, there's also a Pax Emancipation, which is uh, about the abolishment of, of slavery. And the most recent game in this series, uh, and they've gone through various designers, Phil and Matt Eklund have worked on some of them together. They have worked on some of them alone. Phil Eklund did Pax Emancipation by himself, whereas Matt Eklund, his son, went on to do the most recent in the series and the one that I've been playing, Pax Transhumanity. And as you can imagine, it is a speculative science fiction version of the Pax system. And it is, and I mean this in all uh, both respect and fondness, it is ridiculous. Ridiculous! (laughs) ridiculous. <laughs> it is absolutely insanely entertaining and sometimes absurd speculative science fiction about what the fut- about the future of technology and not just technology because basically this game is about taking cards and each card is called an idea and manipulating these cards to shape the future world. And it's not a dystopia world, like it's this best case scenario, what if we as players represented huge financial interests and we developed these ideas to make the world a better place. And each idea card is mostly very, very playful, not not jokey, but there's a lot of fun wordplay, uh, the flavor text is really interesting to read, it's just a meticulously thought-out, themed, and implemented game, and every card rewards you for just sitting there and looking at the elements of it, reading the flavor text, and considering, okay, here's this crazy idea. How does it fit into the game framework? Uh, It's one of those games where even if I were to never get to play it, I would buy it for learning the weird (laughs) system and just how entertaining it is to go through – there are 111 cards in this game. To go through the 111 ideas and see, okay, what does Matt Eklund think this is going to do in the future? Uh, And there are things like there's a card. The cards aren't just technology. The cards are also uh, social programs or politics. Like I'm looking at a card here for Love Eternal. (laughs) That is an idea that you can (laughs) develop and implement in PAX Transhumanity and what these idea cards have on them. I don't want to get so I've taught this game a couple of times and I love teaching it because it is so weird and different uh, that I just feel like. Matt Eklund has told me this really cool system and there's a story that goes into it and I'm now passing it along to someone else. So I love teaching this game and I'm going to not get down in the weeds too much, but to just briefly explain how you manipulate these cards. Uh, At the beginning of the game, of these 111 idea cards, and I love a game that does this, all the PAX games do this, of these 111 idea cards, you're going to take 38 of them, so basically a third of them, the rest of them, are in the box. You're never going to see them. They're not. Maybe, maybe in the game that we play, uh, eternal love will never be an idea, or maybe it will. <laughs> we don't know. Um, and it's not like these cards also are just like random suits. Like some of them legitimately break game rules, mm. but we don't know if this rule is going to be broken when we play the game because we don't know which 38 of the 111 cards are coming into play. Um, However, every single game does have these little chits that represent the world's problems. And they're in every game. Every game, there's gonna be a chit for uh, aging, or infirmity, or global warming, uh, or or hate groups, for instance. As I said, the game isn't the least bit shy about tackling uh, social concepts. Um, Now, as we play, when you develop a card, and, and there's no tableau in this game, by the way, also. There's no sense, and this is not This is distinct from the other PAX games. In the other PAX games, you take a card, it's yours, it's in your tableau, you're using it to affect the map or develop things. Uh, there's this sense of, okay, this is mine. Nothing really impacts transhumanity is mine. We are all looking down at the same grid of cards. We're all interacting with it in the same ways. Nobody has his n- nose down in his own board. The center of the table is where all of our focus is, and I love that about the game. Um, so these cards, as we develop them, eventually they are implemented as commercial, viable, practical, Technologies and ideas. Basically, we develop them, develop them, where society can actually use them. And when we do that, each card has several effects, and they're called impacts. Uh, I love the specificity of this game's terminology for its different actions. They're all really esoteric, weird words, so you'll never confuse them. Um, for instance, there's a, a game called uh, Voyages of Marco Polo, I think. Yeah, where mm-hmm. there are coins. And then there's also little gold bricks. And when we're playing it, we're constantly saying, "Uh, give me three gold. When I meant, you know, give me three coins. Like it's just, (laughs) and and it's no big deal. Everybody always, like the gold is so much more valuable than the coin, so when somebody misspeaks, everyone's always, no, no, you mean coins. Like you never get confused, but the terms are, are close enough that just speaking colloquially as you play, you're gonna screw them up. There is nothing like that in Pax Transhumanity. Everything in Pax Transhumanity has a weird specific name. Mm. Like you you syndicate ideas, you commercialize ideas. Uh cards have impact. The extra cost for a card is called heat. The idea being that it's an additional problem, but everything is given a really weird specific name that you will never confuse when it, with
1: any other concept. And I now, love that because it makes teaching the game super easy. Well, I, I mean, sometimes people can take that too far, though. It's almost like you have to learn the designer's very specific vocabulary to, you, you do. to play their game. And then
0: that's absolutely like I think I I, I don't know what like I. I don't know what would be the threshold for a person's too far, but this game <laughs> is—it's difficult to teach. It's very intricate. It is not a lightly approached game. None of the, none of the packs are, by the way.
1: Yeah, the, uh, the, the the word I've heard applied to this game, like uh, like many of their other games, the Eklund games, is obtuse. Like it's just like <laughs> like there's this there's this just layer of of kind of siphoning through these obtuse rules that you have to get through and if you're willing to be patient about that or maybe have someone like Tom to teach you the damn thing then it's then it's worth it.
0: Well Hassan exactly and I don't I don't want to like that's a huge part of this is all of the pax games require me reading through these obtuse esoteric hugely detailed rules and all the rules also go off into little tangents with footnotes like these guys are aren't just writing rules books they're writing like papers on stuff they're they're writing theses um So a huge part of playing a PAX game, and this is certainly true of PAX Transhumanity, is if you don't want to read that rule book, and I understand plenty of people don't want to, you need someone to translate it for you and to distill it down. and You you need a good teacher, and that's what I love about these games is I love teaching board games, and I especially love having to teach challenging board games. And that's the case with this one, is all of these esoteric names like they're presented in the rule book they're in the wrong order like the rule book is a terrible <laughs> way to learn the game i felt like i had to kind of reverse engineer the rules in order to teach people this game and i kind of love that about it but yeah esoteric obtuse detailed uh maybe going too far with vocabulary those are all fair characterizations of, of pax transhumanity mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. does it have a solo mode It does, but it's just another thing where you flip up a card and arbitrary things happen. Uh, And they don't even make a solo deck for it, Mike. What they do is each of these idea cards has uh, icons for the impacts, the things that happen when the idea is implemented, Uh, and so you take the cards that you didn't put in the game And they are the AI deck. You flip them over, and now each icon, instead of what it means in the game, means a different AI action. Mm -hmm. So there's no attempt to make a a balanced Automa deck or anything. It's just, yeah, we're just going to assign the icons different um, AI moves and have them do stuff arbitrarily based on what cards you're not using to actually play the game. It's Mm -hmm. really... um, I hate to say this because it's kind of a dick thing to characterize someone, but it it just really feels lazy. Mm. Like they just thought, well, we've got all these extra cards. They've got a ton of icons. I guess we'll just pick the icons to mean different things and have the AI do that. Mm. And for a game that plays... It's just so meticulous in terms of setting up actions and doing these very specific things and manipulating these idea cards to have the AI come in and just flip up an icon. It really does have this bull in a china shop. Element to it mm-hmm. is you're carefully setting up actions, and then oh look, the AI gets to bypass all the rules, undo everything you've done, and completely take something out from under you. And mm-hmm. it just it, it's really aggravating to see this beautiful game system subjected to this. Eh, let's just have the AI do some old thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the, solo mode, but I, I really hate it. Uh, yep. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, uh, so so real quick, what you're doing with these idea cards is solving the world's problems because each of those chits that's in every game, many of the cards will solve a problem and they let you take that chit off of, out of the, the middle of the board and it now sits over here with your little money. Where it's a resource you get. It's basically victory points at the end of the game. Um, And I just love that model. Uh, The the tech tree, it's not even a tech tree by the way. The way the grid works, like I've seen games that try to play with tech trees, where okay, you research this and now it unlocks these two. You can use those, Mm -hmm. and you research one of those. It's how video games work. Um, Here, it's nothing quite that simple. Uh, Of course, as you can imagine, because of the nature of this game, but the way that the ideas interact with each other is uh, it it makes for a really fascinating tableau and how players interact with it. Uh, It's like nothing I've seen before, I Mm -hmm. I guess is the cool thing I could say. Mm -hmm. And So what you're doing with these ideas is you are developing and implementing them to solve the world's problems. And when the end game state comes about, you basically win if you solve more relevant problems than anyone else. Because as the world develops, maybe some problems will become more relevant than other. Maybe global warming is a bigger deal than aging. Uh, you know, there, there are problems uh, of space exploration in the game. There, there are the social problems. There are problems of computing. Uh, and in any given game, the ones that are relevant at the end of the game are one of the things that you want to set up as you're playing. Mm. If you play someone who is invested in solving social problems, you want to make sure that you bring about one of the multiple endgame states that rewards solved social problems. Mm-hmm. So if Hassan is over here, he's working on, uh, and this is an example too of the game's kind of playfulness, if Hassan is over here literally working on first world problems. Because that's one of the (laughs) types of problems, it's first world problems. Uh, And maybe he's kicking ass and he's doing a great job at it. But if I can then bring the end game about that favors social problems, I'll win the game Mm -hmm. despite Hassan doing really well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And because we're all playing from the same board... Hassan will see that I can do that if that becomes an option. Mm. like every nobody is playing hidden cards, there's no gotcha and there's no "Oh, like I'm sitting on this secret thing. We are all working from the same tableau in the center. So if there's a way for me as a guy solving social problems to bring about that in-game state, Hassan will probably see it and will know what I'm trying to do
1: right. Um, I I really like games. I think this is a challenging thing to do from a design perspective. That but that games that basically allow the players during the course of the game to modify what the victory conditions are going to yes. be. Um, mm-hmm. Like terraforming Mars kind of does that, right? In a in a not quite as complex way as you're discussing, where people are kind of claiming these end game objectives, right? Mm-hmm. As right. you sort of go through the game, but I think. Um, I think if that's done really well, it's it's so interesting because not only are you trying to kind of build towards particular goals, you're also trying to influence the game state so that it rewards those goals. I think that's uh, that's fascinating.
0: It also, Hassan, when you first sit down to play this game, this is one of the first things I tell people when I'm teaching it is I say, okay, I'm going to teach you the rules and we're going to start the game, and I promise you the overwhelming feeling you're going to have when it's your first turn <laughs> is that you have no idea what to do. I want to promise you that I will feel the same way. <laughs> and that's because you have no idea what's going to win the game. You have to develop the game state. You have right. to literally develop the world and these ideas first to then see, okay, what are the best ways for me to score and win? Uh, yeah, yeah. So. So, yeah, I love this game, and it's one of i mean i'm I'm really grateful I've gotten to play it a couple of times with the pandemic but uh I've played it before the i played it before the pandemic with more people since then I've only been able to play two player games uh It's one of those games where it's especially rich if there are three players because two players are directly you know they can they can respond directly to each other's actions, but with a third player in the mix where maybe someone's going off doing his or her own thing. You you can't just focus on one other player. Uh, It's just the more chaos introduced in this really cool marketplace of ideas, which is literally what it's called, uh, the more interesting the game. So it's another one of those that I'm looking forward to the pandemic being over uh, so I
1: can have more than one person over to play PAX Transhumanity. Mm -hmm. Such a a wonderful theme. I, I really love that that theme and I kind of wish more board games played with it, but I don't think I'm ever going to try an Eklund game. It's just there. Ju- it's just, what? it's just too far for me. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's that line that I'm not going to cross, you know,
0: you so. know, Hassan, if I ever get my hands on you, you're going to play an Eklund <laughs> game. I mean, honestly do feel like I, this, this game is, it, it, it's a really complex, weird, esoteric game, but I honestly do feel that the key to it is the teaching. Uh, and I, I'm not saying that I'm like a magical teacher or anything, but I've poured over these rules and I've written out like different <laughs> flowcharts for, okay, when when do you introduce which ideas? I've got way better player aids than come with the game. Uh, like I, I kind of want to evangelize this game to people who don't want to play Phil or Matt Eklund games. Mm-hmm. Um and certainly more so than like I can understand completely Pax Praferiana, Pax Premier, maybe even Pax Renaissance if you're not into history. I can understand someone not being into that. But I don't understand I don't know of anyone who wouldn't delight in just the really fun weird technological the, the idea cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just each so entertaining. Uh, even the artwork, like it's got great artwork which isn't something you can normally like, there's so much information on the cards, but they still go out of their way to make a lot of room for really expressive, cool artwork. Uh, and there's 111 of the silly things.
1: So. <laughs> nice.
0: All right. So as uh, soon as the pandemic is over, I'm flying Hassan out. I'm going to force him to <laughs> play PAX Transhumanity. Jeez. Mike, it seems like it'd be a little bit easier to twist your arm. So, yeah, I,
2: uh, I, I like complex games, but I just – no one in my gaming group does, so I don't tend right. to play them.
0: <laughs> right, right.
2: Yeah.
0: All right, so uh how about something that's a little friendlier, uh Hassan? Maybe something with cute little animals, that's very like <laughs> very very uh very simple too, I'm sure. What have oh, yes. you been playing?
1: Yeah, the outward appearance is deceptive, but right? um <laughs> So even though Root is a few years old now, I think it's I think it's okay that I'm talking about it. Well, fi- I'm going to talk about it regardless if you, if you think it's okay. So, well, you uh, know, there's I, a couple of reasons that it's newly relevant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, well, what, what, the one big reason I want to talk about it is that this is a game that we've probably my group has played uh, a lot of during the pandemic, and the reason for that is that there's a I think um, quite excellent Steam app that lets you play at least the basic root game without any of the fancy expansions. And also there's a, there's a tabletop simulator mod, which is, I think, very good, which does have all the fancy additional factions. So my group has bounced back and forth between those. There's relative advantages to, to using each of them, which I could get into, but we've played a lot of root and um it's it's one of my favorite games i really i really like it even though i'm going to chat about some of the things which i am um, are controversial or bother me a little bit that don't make it sort of a clear-cut root is awesome game experience um mm-hmm. and then there was a recent big kickstarter right um that that introduced, I think it's called like the Marauder expansion. Yep. They raised a, a ton of money for it. Not surprisingly, it is a game system that has continued to uh, give Leader Games, you know, more and more fans, more and more money. And I think, I mean, I'm all for it. I think it's a, I think it's a great system.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so I, I guess people by now know what root is but why don't why don't you give the little thumbnail sketch of what what exactly it is
1: yeah yeah and i won't like like you know similar to uh transhumanity i'm not going to go do a deep dive or anything into rules but root is is basically a it's characterized by being very asymmetric so each player takes on the role of a, of, a, of a faction of very cute animals that are vying for control of a forest. So they're going to do really terrible things to each other, but they're extraordinarily <laughs> cute. Uh, you, could, you could call it a war game, an asymmetric war game, but I think even that label is problematic. Root is an interesting game because it sort of defies easy categorization, and a lot of that comes from the asymmetry of how the factions play out. Um, but
0: do you, do you have a problem calling it a, a war game? Because I would have no issue. What's your issue with calling it an asymmetric war game?
1: Well, because some of the factions just don't play at all like a, like, like, like a war game. So, you, you know, the, in the base set, like there are these four factions. There are the, the cats, basically the birds. I'm not going to use their fancy names to cast the birds, <laughs> the, the, little, the little woodland creatures, and then there's the vagabond. And you just use its fancy name. That's its fancy name, because no. the Vagabond is special. Um, but the the cats and the birds, yeah, they're playing kind of a war game, sure. The, the Woodland Alliance, sort of, and the Vagabond is not. He's kind of playing like a little mini RPG game. And then... Maybe he'll go fucking ballistic at the end of the game and just start killing everything. Um, but it's it, it's not like I don't want people to have this view that Root is like a traditional area controlly war game where you have a bunch of units, we move them around, we fight battles. Like yes, there are elements that to Root, but really, you know what what defines Root and what makes it. I think a, a challenging and difficult game to wrap your head around is the heavy asymmetry in the factions that's, it's defining characteristic. And I guess what I wanted to chat with you guys about is, is this idea of whether that, that difficulty, both in terms of teaching the game, learning the game, wrapping your head around the multiple strategies that each of the factions is going to play out is worth the cognitive load to play at. And this is one of those games where I don't think there's an easy answer to that, right? Like, I mean, obviously it's going to depend on individual players and playgroups, but there is there is a fair bit of work behind this game. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. For me, the, the problem, Hassan, is it's one of those games
0: that um, y- you have to play it many, many times before you're actually playing it as in Intended before you're actually engaging the full design. Very and I true. say that yeah. Yeah. because the way that Root has worked in our group, uh, and I, I love it as well, Hassan. Like I, I will go to bat for Root. I understand the criticisms of it, but to pre-answer your question, I think it is absolutely worth the cognitive load. But it's, it's more than just a cognitive load. It's, it's playing it over and over again and letting the meta develop. Mm -hmm. Because for us still, for our group, and I feel like we just haven't played Root enough. I'd love to play it more. Um, Root is a game about convincing everyone else at the table that someone else is winning. Mm -hmm. And that's not bad. Like, that's, that's, that's the cornerstone for a lot of good games. But I don't feel like you're really engaged with Root. Until it's not a game where you're trying to convince other people – where other people have their own opinions about (laughs) who's winning uh, and they're not going to be swayed because they feel, oh, he knows the game better than I do or, oh, he's smarter than I – like basically in in Root, our games tend to be – They have a a social element to them where I'm pretty good at at convincing other people, no, I'm not winning. This person is winning. And the guy who's better at games than I am, who should win Root every time, he's not as good as I am at playing the table. Uh, And that's just a really weird dynamic, (laughs) I I think. Uh, And I don't think it's the game necessarily that Cole
1: Worley designed. Yeah, Um, I mean – uh, yeah, I'm not sure about that. I mean, yeah, th- there's there's sort of two parts to that necessity of repeat plays, and you've definitely hit on one of them. I mean, one of them is that you just need to play the game over and over again to wrap your head around, let's just take one faction. Like, you just got to play one faction over and over again until you start to understand how that particular faction is supposed to earn its victory points and that's going to differ for each of the factions like how the woodland alliance earns its victory points is going to be different than how the birds do it and you just have to kind of pick that faction and play with them several times until you start to figure it out now at the same time you're trying to wrap your head around how your faction works you're hopefully also developing a better understanding of how all the other factions are earning their victory points. So now you suddenly see, oh well, the way that the cats are going to work, because Dave always picks the fucking cats, is they're going to be more of a, a, a war gamey in-your-face faction, but they're also trying to place as many buildings down on the map, and we've got to burn those goddamn buildings down, right? And if someone doesn't burn those buildings down, the cats are going to run away with it um that's eventually kind of the understanding that you come to after playing the game numerous times is you understand that each of the factions has the capacity to run away with the game if you don't stop them and you understand what is required to do that i think that's like what you're talking about that's the point at which you're now finally playing root is that you're not only understanding how you're going to win you're also understanding how to stop everybody else at the table um But to get to that point is really tough. It is. It's totally rewarding. It's absolutely rewarding to replay this game numerous times with the same group and develop proficiency in your faction and develop a better understanding of how and when to attack the other players. And then you layer on that, that social element that you're talking about, Tom, which is not just saying, hey, you know what? Um, right now, Simon's winning. The Vagabond is winning. He's running away with shit, guys. If someone doesn't punch the Vagabond soon, <laughs> he's going to win. We know this, right? But everybody's like, well, I don't want to be the one to punch him because that's a waste of my turn. Why don't you punch him? <laughs> and so nobody fucking punches them, and then Simon wins, right? Like, so I, I, once you sort of come to that deeper understanding of Root, ah, it's 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 lovely. It's a really yeah. fascinating game. And before I get too deep into kind of, like, the, the turn-off parts of this, I really would encourage anyone who's had any passing interest in Root, but who has been potentially turned off by this perceived complexity, it, it it's not actually... I mean, I know this is going to sort of run counter to what I just said. It's not actually that complex of a game. Like it, it, I it, agree. It, the game is fairly straightforward, and the player aids that you will be given are so helpful that your first time playing, you can kind of just follow your dumb little list of instructions, and you're not really going to be worrying too much about what everybody else is doing. You're going to make mistakes. People are going to make rules errors. It's okay. And then before you know it, you're playing Root. It really, it's it's not something you need to run away from. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, Mike, have you played much Root?
2: I have not. And kind of for the reasons you guys were talking about before is anything that's asymmetric and takes multiple plays for the group to kind of get the hang of, generally isn't going to fly in my group <laughs> we tend to play newer stuff as i get stuff in the store and also just the the confrontation of it i think will uh will not go over well but i would personally like to play it so i might try some uh might grab the steam version try online
1: this right yeah i'll use this as a plug for the steam version i do think that the steam version is a good way to introduce a group to uh, to root because mm-hmm. it it reinforces the rules, right? And and such and a major problem with root when you're first learning it is that people will just make mistakes and forget to do things the right way mm-hmm. um and then three turns later they're like oh wait i couldn't craft this item because i needed to have a blah blah, blah. and you're like oh <laughs> and now there's an asterisk next to this game because you're a fucking idiot right and, and, and in the in the steam version that's not going to happen right yep. um it's a really smooth uh version of the game for sure mm-hmm. yeah yeah
0: and And one of the things that I do like that gets to what you were talking about in terms of developing proficiency with a particular faction uh it's a game that even if you're if, if, if you don't win like it's really rewarding to take your turn uh, The turns are are dense and full of cool stuff that you're doing uh I just feel like the pacing in route is really solid that by the time it gets around to you because the turns have multiple stages and there are multiple things to do in each stage uh. It's just a, It's a. It's gratifying to take a turn in root. Uh, there's never like, well, I'm losing. There's not much. I can do. <laughs> well uh,
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I might push back against that. There, uh-huh. there, there are some aspects of the pacing that I think are are tricky. Um, okay. I mean, one thing I'll point out. This is something that I I think is thorny about root, and that increasingly has actually started to irritate me. Is that This is a game where I often feel, I don't know if this is going to make sense, but I often feel like the designer is standing over my shoulder, Cole is standing over my shoulder and watching me play a particular faction and either smiling, saying, yep, you're doing it right, buddy, or shaking his head in like obvious (laughs) disappointment and just being like, no, that's not how I designed you to play the lizard faction, you know, and (laughs) And it's kind of like that feeling of of a designer's hand in a game, that is that is almost constraining what you're allowed to do in a game. And and I think games vary on this feeling. Um, some games basically say, "Hey, here's a bunch of rules. It's relatively simple. Go have some fun. Like go, just go do stuff." This is not that kind of game. It's like it's very much like, for example, lately I've been trying to figure out how to play the Lizard Cult, and they're mm-hmm. they're pretty tough to actually kind of figure out how to play well. But I'm enjoying the process, right? That that's what Root wants you to do is to kind of learn it. But the the challenging thing about the Lizards is they can't really attack other factions super easily. Like they're this crazy weird religious cult, and they were just building gardens and praying to whatever weird lizard gods they have in the middle of the forest. And every now and then they can convert a cat into their lizard cult. And that's pretty awesome actually, but they can't just say, Hey guys, let's go march and kill some of the otters. You know, they just can't actually do that super easily. So that's a constraint, right? And so what you have to learn with the lizards is, okay, well, if I do want to engage in a certain degree of warfare, if I do want to attack this other faction so that I can burn down their buildings so I can build some more gardens. Oh, I have to go through this very specific series of steps in order to do that. That Mm -hmm. can be kind of frustrating. Um, I wonder, too, how much of that is
0: faction dependent, too, Hassan, because I, I have to confess, I have played a ton of Root. I have never played the lizards or the otters. I have the new like underground expansion, and I can't imagine I'm going to get to play any of those anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, I haven't played the map on the other side, uh, and not because I don't want to, just because I still feel like there's still so much for me to explore with the fork core groups and the default map layout.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you could be right. I think I, I think there's truth to the fact that the lizards, the moles, the otters are not only more complex, but there's, like, a right way to play them. And in our last game, just as an example, like, we had the the moles, the lizards, and then we had the the cats and the birds, I think. And um, there several times during the game, a couple of us were saying, like, ah, I don't think I'm playing my faction right. You know, and that's what I mean. Like, it's, like, this feeling, like, you know... You're just not quite. You haven't quite figured out exactly what you're supposed to do with this newfangled right. faction, that is is just you know uh, it's just newer to you. There's more rules overhead. You, you kind of need to break some of the patterns that you've learned from playing the cats or the birds or the woodland. Um, it's it's still worth it. I still want to keep banging my head against the fucking lizards, but it's it. <laughs> there are times when it's frustrating, for sure. Um, sure.
2: So which of the expansions do you consider essential? And I know some of them are adding more factions. Do those increase the player count as well? Or does it stay at four?
1: I'm
2: assuming Uh,
0: it's always four, right? Well, I don't know. Do you know, Hassan?
1: Yeah, so all the stuff that they've put out to this point is to four, but the newest Kickstarter, I believe, is going to allow people... I think it's going to allow people to go to five. Um, And also, a, a major focus of the recent Kickstarter was to... Tighten up two-player games, because yeah, traditionally root isn't something you're going to want to play two-player. I do think it's at its best with four. Mm-hmm. Um, so,
0: and you can tell too that they are there are as far as two-player matchups. Part of what's in the rules are basically saying, you know, these two factions playing against each other probably not a good idea. These two factions, better idea. Like yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You, yeah. Part of the design is definitely about. I think it definitely requires a third faction to really flex how the, the factions are supposed to work with the yeah. asymmetry. Yeah.
1: The only um, the only other pacing thing I was gonna point out, Tom, mm-hmm. is that and I'm I'm sure you've experienced this, is that this can catch people off guard, but this is a game that has it's a race game to thirty V P. Yeah. Um and that's really cool. I, I think I've expressed before, like with Dune Imperium, I like games that are that way, where it's like, yeah, okay, you're racing to get to a certain VP. Every VP you're kind of fighting for, it's tense. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Root is also a game where there's there can be, especially in the late game, like these huge point turns. Like suddenly, you know... As soon as people hit past 20, the whole table has to be on edge and ready for the fact that one player in a single turn could end the game. Like, the Vagabond could go ballistic this turn and score eight points, and we just have to be ready for that, right? Um, And as long as everybody's kind of ready for that odd pacing, I I think that's okay. But it can often take people... By surprise right they're like oh okay it's the late game oh my god the game just ended um, generally whenever we finish a game of root one person is won,
0: and everybody else is sitting around grumbling because <laughs> yes. they would have yes. won in the next turn
1: yeah <laughs> like it's that yes. kind of thing like yeah. oh i was
0: one turn away oh
1: <laughs> and, 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 and here i'm gonna give my little personal beef about root which I, my game group they're gonna laugh if they hear this but I really think there's a problem with first player advantage in Root, because ah. I think that it's a race to 30. As soon as someone hits 30, the game's over. There's not an equal distribution of turns around the table. And uh, in my informal data collection and analysis, <laughs> I think that the advantage goes to people who are earlier in turn order. Um,
0: and there's no there's no like, hey, if you're second you get an extra gold piece, right? No. Like there's no uh
1: there's nothing in the game to offset going later, is there? Yeah. No, there's not. There's not. And and Cole has spoken to this and his argument I think is actually flimsy. I, I really respect him. He's I think a brilliant designer. But he basically says, No, root is too interactive, it's too social, it's a game very much about identifying who's winning and then everyone will stomp on them. That's part of the design. So the whole notion of first-player advantage is going to just be minuscule in comparison to those other game factors. But I see that as a cop-out. I, 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 I just sure. do, not, I do not buy it. I think that there should be some slight compensation for that. Mm-hmm. Or,
0: mean, with, or just let,
1: so much- let the whole round play out. like Kind of like in Dude Imperium. Someone hits... That ten-point victory threshold, but you still ensure that ah, everyone right. plays out the round, and people can actually surpass ten points. So yeah, uh, Hassan, so... who would who would win in a tie? <laughs> <laughs> the person with the most spice.
0: So. <laughs> okay, if you were going to say I, uh, the tied players share a victory, I was going to disqualify you from <laughs> ever making a board game again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I uh, what what's I i'm sorry to say i didn't even know about this marauders kickstarter so this is just a new faction and a fifth support for a fifth player
1: um i think it's more to it than that i think that there's some really cool like basically hiring mini factions that you can incorporate into any game so like you can hire i think like a crazy bear you know to be kind of like some buff unit um that will do shit for you it's it seems like it's pretty cool um I mean, a lot of people have this concern: like, does Root really need more complexity, right. <laughs> more rules overhead? But, but if you're like my group, um, you know, where we we've we we've played Root so much to this point that adding in some more stuff doesn't necessarily worry us. Yeah, I, I, I'm excited to try it out.
0: Well, it sounds like that map where they add a ferry boat. Like, if you yeah. have you tried that?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. It's pretty Cause cool. Because I
0: look at that and I'm like, yeah, exactly. Like, I look at that and I'm like, okay, that, that seems like a, a a module that doesn't necessarily favor anyone that I know of. Yeah, let's give that a shot. Let's throw in that twist. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Hassan, what are your opinions on Root as a solitaire game? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've never tried, nor nor will I ever try. Wait a minute. Why are you saying that? I, I, I just, there's, no, I have no interest in using any of like the clockwork mechanics for the different factions. That is, there's so much of my joy in this game is 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 sitting with my friends playing this one. So. Huh,
0: I wonder, maybe if you would get less frustrated trying to figure out the lizards if you practiced against the clockwork <laughs> players. <laughs> what, what I do like about, and this is mainly in theory because I haven't played with the clockwork players that much, um, but I do like that rather than this one-size-fits-all, we're just going to flip up random icons and the AI does stuff independent of the rules, they try to give each, they do give each faction a board for how to manipulate, for how an AI player would work. Like, they give each faction its own Automa system. Um, Now, you're still flipping up cards and just reading off the icon to determine what it does, but... The icon does a different thing for each automa faction. I, uh, they're basically mm-hmm. writing a separate script depending on what faction is playing solitaire, and I, I like that a lot.
1: Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. No, it, it definitely wasn't like a secondhand solitaire design. They, yeah. They put a whole bunch of thought into it. It's, it's a whole separate expansion you can buy called the Clockwork Expansion, right? So they they really invested a lot of energy into trying to put something together that would work not just for Solitaire, but also for two- and three-player games, right? If you want to throw in another yes. faction or two. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So, All right, so uh,
0: when Hassan comes out, Mike, and we subject him to Pax Transhumanity, we're subjecting you to some serious Root.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm in for it. <laughs>
0: uh, Hassan, have you had to teach Root?
1: Uh, you know, that's a good question. I don't think so, because the guy who bought it, that was that was Simon in my group. I think he was the one who took the lead on learning it. We all sort of did due diligence and kind of watched ah. video rules of it before coming to the table. So, no, I've never actually had to teach it fresh to a game group. Root is one of those uh, games, again, where I felt the need to
0: uh, reverse engineer the rules in terms of how to present them. Mm. Uh, so I taught Root just the basic actions of move and combat. Like, you, you do that basic stuff independent of any factions. And then, depending on which factions we're using in the game, uh, I have a separate, like, player aid that I bring out that plugs how each faction works into the framework of basic actions that I just taught. Like, Mm. I have a separate presentation for each faction. um, (laughs) Which is still, like, it's a big ask to, especially trying to play four-player route with new players, is you're having to teach them four separate games. And that, that frankly, I I would deliberately steer clear of because I think a four-player game, so much is out of your control. Like I, I, would never introduce root to. I wouldn't want to introduce root to someone as anything other than, here's a three-player game we're gonna try. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom, but yes. What
1: what kind of snacks and drinks are at your house? This is this is a big determinant whether I'm gonna come and play Transhumanity. So that is basically a factor
0: of of who's showing up and what. <laughs> uh, generally, people bring their own snacks, so it's what folks have brought. Like I tend to. Provide the place, and we're sitting at my house, and uh, everybody brings like chips or soda or something. So it depends on what people brought. All right, byob. Well, All right. What what, what? what? Are you like really fussy about? You won't play board games at someone's
1: house unless there's a certain <laughs> beer there or something. No, not necessarily. But that would be that would that would sweeten the deal for sure. So. Uh,
2: Hassan, are you aware of Tom's rule about drinks at the table?
1: Oh, is, uh. is is it no drinks on
2: the table? Nowhere near the table. Nowhere near.
0: I yeah. mean, you can have them near the table, but they can't be at table level. Like, I, I have extra chairs that you use as, as your own little table for your drinks. Yeah, <laughs> I'm super uptight about drinks on a table. Just seeing pictures of drinks on a table, I break out in a cold sweat. I'm like, oh, God, what if it falls over? Yeah. <laughs> yeah Wait, I, you saw, I, you've, you've let I, people have drinks on tables with your board games?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and Oh, my God. One of the one of the earliest game nights I can remember with my current group is I kind of went a little overboard on drinking scotch for that game, and, and, <laughs> and so I had a I had a full pint of beer next to we were playing Lords of Waterdeep, and I just dumped it all over the board halfway yes, through you did. the game. Yep, yep, but, yes, you did. But, but that was me; it was my copy, and so I think it kind of let everybody know. Oh, okay, well he did it. He's not doing <laughs> what he did. his head didn't just explode.
0: I mean, I'm trying to think, what would I feel worse about if I were to dump beer all over my own game or <laughs> over someone else's copy of a game? I don't
2: know. I think the worst case, right, is knocking a beer over on someone's, like, Kickstarter copy of something they can't yeah. replace. Yes.
0: Oh, my! exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yep. So, Mike, do you have strict rules? Can I, can I uh, like, have a Coke on the table at your house when we play board games?
2: Um, I generally am okay with it, but I kind of <laughs> keep an eye on people. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, what, what about can i eat cheetos and then play your copy of lost ruins of arnak
2: no and funny <laughs> funny story at right now we don't have open gaming at the store but normally uh i don't allow cheetos in the store or doritos
0: <laughs> ah but no that makes perfect sense to me yeah absolutely uh all right well thanks everyone for listening we will be back in a few more weeks to talk about more stuff we're playing i am tom chick i've been here with mike pullman and hassan lopez Thanks to everyone for listening. Cheers.
2: It's so ridiculous. It's fantastic.